Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 1976, and a crusty but benign TV newsman crosses paths with a beautiful girl TV producer who wants to make news entertainment. The movie Network. Welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And this is the podcast where we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 films of all time list to find out if they are really as good as people say, do they hold up, and how have they influenced the filmmakers of today. This week we'll be talking about Network. Last week we were talking about The Philadelphia Story, a movie that surprisingly had some uh, BDE that you didn't even know about. But now you do. <laughs> yeah, I want to actually start with a bit of a mea culpa because I was ragging hard on the Cary Grant character for not, I think, having an arc for showing up and being like, love me. Yeah. You have to change, Catherine Hepburn. And many people pointed out that I was not giving full credit to the absence of a change, that Cary Grant's character had changed before he ever showed up, that he had given up drinking as part of his apology. And you're right. Like, we don't ever really see him drinking before Does in that the flashback count? when he stomps out. I don't know. I mean, maybe. like It doesn't maybe count if it, that the arc film. happens outside of the film. But that he at least had change for love. And I was okay. like, he just acts like so he, he, only she has to change. I mean, so they did a little bit of work. So I guess when he is talking about reading books to keep him sober, he is kind of reflecting back on the change. So we yeah. just kind of meet him a little bit Maybe later. if instead of breaking like a golf club, she had broken a whiskey bottle, I wouldn't be so dumb. All right. Well, you know, to this point, Josh Ferguson says, I agree Grant isn't at his most charming, but maybe that was a choice. You know, he's not trying to win Hepburn back. He's trying to make her stumble and he uses Stewart to do it. Too charming and maybe she just runs back to him without growing. That I kind of disagree with because I think he is protecting her. I don't think he's trying to win her back per se. I, I think could see him as like a minotaur in the middle of a maze, knocking down all the walls, being like, she got to come back over here eventually. Well, I also kind of see the idea of him trying to be charming to show like, no, this is who I am when I'm not drinking. Maybe who he is when he's not drinking is slightly less charming Cary Grant. And maybe when he's drinking, he's the charming Cary Grant that we know and love. <laughs> I mean, on that note, Feeling Good Lewis at Grip Grand said, you know, Paul Shear, since you enjoyed drunk acting Jimmy Stewart so much in the Philadelphia story, as do I, I'm yes. so good. 
Have you seen his masterful turn in the movie Harvey, where he plays a drunk whose best friend is a six-foot-tall invisible rabbit? I have not seen that film. I know that Jim Parsons did a version of it on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I've never seen it. I have to see the movie. That's pretty fun. It's When I was a kid, the movie I thought it was is very different than the movie that it is. Okay. I would hear this movie about like the dude with the invisible rabbit friend when I was seven, and I was oh, like, yeah, what is that? And it's not that It's movie. not going to be that. It's, I mean, I have to do a double feature of Harvey and Marty, just the first name dudes who have a pretty depressing life. Why not do a triple feature with Drop Dead Fred if you're going to throw in Invisible Oh, Amy, friends? don't get involved in this conversation. <laughs> uh, Team June. <laughs> um, our final comment is from a name that Amy won't say, Freckle Fart, but I'll let you read the comment. I don't, it's like, it's, there's a little bit of third grade in me. I can't mm-hmm. say your Twitter handle out loud, Mario. I'm sorry. But he pointed out, you know, that the Maltese Falcon, the anagram for that is not tease a fallen con man, which I was like, maybe it is. Sounds about right to me. Right. I don't know. He said it's tease a fallen con. Right. Uh, but that it is a good anagram for soft, lethal menace, to which our producer, Josh, the most brilliant, hardworking man in the business, found some other anagrams for the Maltese Falcon. He said it can also be lactate flesh omen. Escalate Elf Month, Tamale's Tech Felon, and Fatal Cement Holes. All right. So just a little bit of uh, going back into the grab bag of the Maltese Falcon. I would see all of those movies. You know, uh, I'm in. I mean, I think I've seen at least two of them for How Did This Get Made. Uh, Amy, uh, we have a special announcement that coming up September 26th, we're doing another live show at the Alamo Drafthouse. The theme is TBD as we are still deciding on it. But uh, make sure you head on over to the Alamo Drafthouse uh, website and wait. Just wait there. I don't even know if tickets are on sale just yet, but we will be there September 26th. Mark your calendar and make sure you wear your Unspooled merch, which you can get at tpublic.com slash stores slash Unspooled. We got to see some new shirts out there. We'll make new shirts if these shirts continue to sell, which is uh, always a, a good thing. And on Podswag, we have that amazing Unspooled poster that you can follow along with us. If you want to bring it out to a live show, Amy and I are uh, more than happy to sign it and take all the credit for Scott C's work on that amazing poster. Do you think we should really do a Jimmy Stewart BDE shirt? We got some, we got, we got some. Oh, <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, will we be blaspheming Jimmy Stewart's no, name? No, I think we got to figure out a right way to do it because we need to, you know what? I'm going to get that into the mix right away. We're going to, I'm going to see. By the time you hear this, maybe it will be up in the store. Does he have descendants who are going to get mad at him? No, it? no, no. It's a compliment. It's a compliment. Who doesn't want BDE? You know, um, This movie we're talking about today, Network, has a classic line. I would say one of the most classic lines, probably in the top five most memorable lines in cinema. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. And we kind of had a goofy uh, call to action last week, which was call in with your most ridiculous reading of that line. So that's all that we kind of gave you. Just read it in a way that's a little bit more unexpected. And boy, you really... uh, you. You, you surprised us. Uh, so let's take a listen to a little montage, an audio montage of I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Hello, Paul and Amy. I'm calling to let you know that I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Mad as hell I am and going to take it anymore. I'm not. Frankly, my dear, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. That's the Chicago way. Um, I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> oh, for Pete's sake, I'm mad as heck and I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm mad as hell, sir. I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah, she, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. She, yeah. Hey, Bucky, 
I made as hell, but I'm not gonna take it anymore. I'm mad as hell, and I just can't take it anymore, don't you know? Hey y'all, I am mad as hell, and I'm just not gonna take it anymore. By the power of Grayskull, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm slightly perturbed, and I'm probably just gonna sit here and take it. What do you think, Amy? <laughs> I think that the world is full of great actors. <laughs> All right. Speaking of great acting, let's talk about our feature presentation. The year is 1976. Sweden's most profitable export is the pop group ABBA. Ronald Wayne is a co-investor in Apple, and he sells his 10% share of the company for $800, a holding that would now cost $35 billion today. An American panel warns that CFCs and aerosol cans can damage the ozone layer, and yet the 80s still happened. Margaret Hamilton reprises her role as the Wicked Witch in an episode of Sesame Street. It was such a terrifying episode that it's never been re-aired. Movie theaters are playing Rocky, Taxi Driver, Carrie, Bad News Bears, and today's film, Network. It comes in at number 64 in the 2007 AFI Top 100 list, up two points from 1997's list. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Network. This is the story about a TV channel, part of a giant TV network that realizes they can make a ton of money if when one of their old guys who has a crack up on air stays on air, pitches himself as, say, the mad prophet of the airwaves, they can make a mint on this man going insane in the public eye, thus reshaping how we think of news from this point on until the absolute current present when everybody is a Howard Beale. Uh, the people that we have here starring in this movie that was directed, of course, by Sidney Lumet, Written by Patty Chayefsky, we have Faye Dunaway as Diana Christensen, the uh, genius of the idea. You've got William Holden, who we know from Sunset Boulevard, yes. playing Max Shoemaker, the principled boss. You have Peter Finch as Howard Beale, the man who goes insane. And you have Robert Duvall, not that long after we saw Robert Duvall uh, make his debut in To Kill a Mockingbird. It's like 12 years later, and he looks like 50 years older. And you've got Ned Beatty, who we just saw in Nashville uh, as Lily Tomlin's bad husband playing Arthur Jensen, who gives the famous speech, the second famous speech. This is a movie with a lot of famous speeches. Well, I have to say that I read a quote from him while I was doing some research, and he said, let this be a sign to all actors never to turn down a part. I only worked one day on the movie network, and I got an Oscar nomination for it. And it just goes to show you that, you, you know, no part is too small. He makes the most out of that, uh, like, two or three scenes that he's in. It is... Such an amazing performance. I literally was riveted to the screen when he was up there, out Howard Beeling Howard Beale in that scene. Exactly true. And I think another person who would agree with Ned Beatty's maxim is Beatrice Strait. She plays William Holden's wife, his wife who he betrays. Mm -hmm. And she's on screen, I think, four minutes total. And she also won an Oscar nomination. She actually won the award and for Best Supporting Actor. She holds... The uh, most interesting distinction of being the shortest on-screen appearance for winning an Academy Award. I think she's only on screen for about five minutes and 40 seconds, and she won an Academy Award for that amount of screen time. And it's really wild because she beat out – I mean, she beat out major people. She beat out Jodie Foster for Taxi Driver this year. She beat out one of my personal favorite performances of all time, Piper Laurie and Carrie. Oh, wow. That's how good she is in this movie. She beats out those iconic roles. Well, you know, this film – and I'm kind of still digesting it, is really interesting to me. The performances are phenomenal. I mean, even 
uh, Howard Beale, who is the centerpiece of the whole thing, he wins Best Lead Actor. Uh, he is unfortunately passes away before he can accept that award. Um, it's just powerhouse acting, really specific relationships. I think beautiful camera work. It makes a statement that I think is so true to now. But there is something about this movie that I had like this push pull with where I loved elements of it, but I don't know if I loved this movie, like all, like I almost loved all the parts of the movie without loving the full film, if that makes sense. Huh, well, let's, let's talk that out and figure that out. Like is, is part of your kind of glitch with this movie just that we live in a post network world where everything they're satirizing is true and therefore it's hard to find it funny or amusing. It's just anger inspiring. Well, it was a satire then. It's not really a satire now. It it's is a documentary. Yeah. It like, and for people who found Faye Dunaway to be so harsh, she doesn't seem harsh to me. Like, she seems of the ilk of these types of producers and what we understand in the world of of making television. Anywhere from The Bachelor to what goes on, like, with Rupert Murdoch controlling, you know, Fox News. It, it didn't blow my mind. So Yeah, the stories I've heard about the emotional manipulation on The Bachelor, she's probably better. Like, if I had to have a boss, I'd be like, okay, I'll go with her. <laughs> But that didn't trip me up. I enjoyed it. I thought it had it it is fun and funny and the the voiceover is really engaging. I think it wasn't as riveting as I expected it to be. I think it starts off so strong. I think it ends really strong. And I think in the middle it kind of sags. The dialogue is great though and this is I'm I'm having a hard time pinpointing it cuz I really I love the relationship between Faye Dunaway and Max. I think that's fantastic. I, I love watching the performance of Peter Finch. I think he just is so sympathetic, and you're watching this really subtle performance of someone, you know, essentially losing their mind. I and I and I can't quite figure it out. Do you, do you love this movie fully, or is it like something that you are like, oh, I'm in? Yeah, I mean, I guess if we had to look at my history with this movie. When you start studying like film and media in college, this is one of the movies that they bring out really early on. Right. They're like, oh, you're interested in film. You're interested in the way we frame things. You're interested in storytelling and corruption and cameras and what a producer does. You watch this movie. And that's for a couple of reasons. A, because it really is an introduction to like framing into the different roles people have and into the ideas of the stories we think Americans want to hear. Yeah. But also because Sidney Lumet wrote this amazing book, Making Movies. And Which is an amazing phenomenal. book. Love that book. I think it's like the best gateway book if you want to really understand all the different parts and all the things that you just you decide on when you're a director. And he writes about it really honestly and he talks about his hits and his misses, but not even from the perspective of hits and misses, just choices. No, it's it's one of those fantastic books that doesn't try to elevate the art form. It talks to you, not above you, and and it makes you feel really invested. I read it freshman year in college. Uh-huh. But yet did not see this movie. This is the first time I've seen this movie. Yeah. But so um, I think because of yeah. this, because he is associated in my head, this movie in particular is associated with you are just now learning to think mm -hmm. that I have gone through so many waves with it where you you do really love it. You kind of seize onto it because it feels like somebody reveals the man behind the curtain. Yeah. And then you grow up a little bit and you're like, oh, it's a little embarrassing. You know, the way you look at the stuff that you thought was really cool. Right. But then the older I get, I circle back around. And I'm like, you know what? No, it's great. And I love this movie. We're living in a state of anger, right? Like how we're being fed information what takes off in our news cycle, what gets washed away. Like 
we are in a time where news is almost more important than it's ever been. And what becomes news, what goes away, what stays around for months. The story's about the news. Who's making the news and why? Yeah. I mean, this is a movie with 8 million old white guys who all look the same right. age, right? There's mm-hmm. like five people that if you're not paying attention, you will oh, just get them all confused. It's crazy, yeah. And I think there is something, I mean, A, that's true. Like there are scenes in this movie where they pan across all the newscasters on the other channels and they're all old white guys. Mm-hmm. And there is definitely an old white guy thing in this movie. And I think it's actually critiquing it. I think it's aware that there's yes. an old white guy thing happening in this movie because you have a couple scenes at these big net- network upfronts. In the first one, before Diana Christensen is famous at the network, you look across and it's a whole dais of old white guys. And then when she gets more of an important role at the network, there's another meeting, another giant dais. And you see that not only is she up there, there's a few more women, there's a person of color, that the network is evolving. But there is this old white guy thing. And there's scenes where there's just a bunch of old white guys who all look alike at a table Mm. talking about ratings and things. And it is deliberately banal. I think also the idea of putting Faye Dunaway in, and I, this performance, I think she is amazing. I love, love, love this character. I, And maybe, again, I'm rooting for the bad guy in it, but I just, I think that she's amazing, but she's representing a new voice. Like, she is the new face in this thing. And if an old white guy had her idea, I think it would be received better than coming from her. So it is dealing with sexism. It is dealing with issues that are, uh, you know, misogyny that are important that we're talking about now. And I think, I guess I wrestle with this all the time. So forgive me if I'm saying this wrong, but she's written in the way that I think you would write maybe a typical man of this time. Like, but you wouldn't critique him as hard, but yet she is critiqued. Like, why can't she commit to this relationship? You know, when uh, her boyfriend basically orgasms and she's like over and done with it. It's like, I love it. I love it so much. But she's got to pay. She's got to pay. Like, she's got to answer for it. Where, you know, a lot of the times we watch these movies, especially in the 70s, these men don't have to answer for their behavior. And I and I love that idea of, like, this movie must have been kind of at the forefront of that in a way. That's true. I mean, they really do a thing here in this movie of tying Diana the worker to Diana the bad girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And her saying she's a bad girlfriend. and her But her description of who she is as a girlfriend is that, is that she's basically like a man. Yeah. You know, she's like, I come fast. And then I want you out of my bed. And yeah. she's like, I'm a man. That's who I am. But they keep tying it together in ways that I think are really funny. Right. Like there's that montage where she starts to have a relationship with Max Schumacher. Oh, I love and this. And they go on this date. And it's so funny because if you're watching the scene with the sound off, it's beautiful. They're walking on a beach. They're at a romantic dinner. They're laughing. They're running from far away. But with the sound on, all she's doing is talking about the show. And he doesn't say a word. And then they get in bed. And then this is what happens. <laughs> We're paying on these nuts from the Ecumenical Liberation Army 10,000 bucks a week in order to turn in authentic film footage of their revolutionary activities. That constitutes inducement to commit a crime. And Walter says we'll all wind up in federal prison. I said, Walter, let the government sue us. Let the federal government sue us. We'll take them to the Supreme Court. We'll be front page the month. The New York Times. The Washington Post and the Times Journal, so we us. We'll be front page for months. We'll have more press than Watergate. All I need is six weeks federal education, and the mouth state of America can start carrying its own time slot. Bugging me now is my daytime programming. 
NBC's got a lock on daytime. Lousy game shows. I mean, that scene <laughs> is amazing like that you don't see the visuals there but they are having sex they transition to having sex and then that's a post-coital there as well I, I love love her performance in this movie it's true and i really do think that he that patty chayefsky and Sidney Lumet have built in this whole system of watching a woman struggle to be a boss mm-hmm. because you have these early early scenes where before she really even becomes a major character you know they kind of casually refer to her as like the little girl from programming or mm-hmm. diana can she sit in? She's not really considered a major player at the network yet. The very first word she says is actually, she says the name of the ecumenical liberation army, the thing that she's really going to drive towards, this idea she's going to bring towards. But even after that, she has an early scene with her underlings. Nobody's paying attention to her. Nobody's reading her memos. Nobody's making eye contact with her. Sidney Lumet catches them all fiddling with their blouses, brushing their shoulders, not respecting how intelligent she is as a boss. And she calls them out on it. And I love this scene where she calls them out on it. That's um, Butch Boss. I don't want to play Butch Boss with the people. But when I took over this department, it had the worst programming record in television history. This network hasn't one show in the top 20. This network is an industry joke. And we better start putting together one winner for next September. I want a show developed based on the activities of a terrorist group. Joseph Stalin and his merry band of Bolsheviks. I want ideas from you people. That is what you're paid for. And by the way, the next time I send an audience research report around, you'd all better read it or I'll sack the fucking lot of you. Is that clear? I mean, and that kind of just balls-to-the-wall character, it reminds me of... Uh, there's elements of Sorkin in this. I feel like you see, you feel this energy off of her. And whenever she's on screen, I'm totally committed. It, there was something interesting because I think Chayefsky uh, and Lumet made it very clear to her uh, that she should play the character cold-blooded and soulless. Sidney Lumet told her, I know the first thing you're going to ask me is where is her vulnerability? Don't ask it. She has none. If you try to sneak it in, I'll get rid of it in editing. So it'll be a wasted effort. Um, and, and, and I think it actually makes for a really dynamic performance because when we are introduced to this world, um, Peter Finch goes on air and says he's going to kill himself and no one realizes it. It is a job. This is a time card punching job and, and everything that we've talked about so far, Hollywood or media is viewed as like, whoa, this magical, cool place. And here, you look at everybody in that room, they're looking at the screen, they're not really listening, it's all just bop, 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 bop. And it takes one person, like, did you hear that? Did you hear that? You know, she is basically waking up this dormant beast that they can't, it can't live anymore. It's, you know, so I think, I love that too, that you're showing that these old white men are on the way out because they're not in, you know, they're not changing in their point of view. They're not growing with it. I mean, here we are in a world where they talk about this network as though it is the most important thing on the planet, and even these people don't care. Yeah. I love that scene so much. And it's interesting. I mean, when you read Sidney Lumet's book about network, he does this kind of arc from beginning to end of the movie that I feel like I never, ever, 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 ever catch while I'm watching it. Mm -hmm. But then he explains it, and then I look for it, and I'm like... Okay, I can kind of see it, but I, he does it so seamlessly. Is that the, the lighter to darker thing that he's doing with the cinematography? I was thinking more about how he has this network show up at the very beginning being very naturalistic. Mm-hmm. You know, in the very first meetings you see about like, oh, what are we having tonight? Howard's over here, blah, 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 blah. 
he has the camera just kind of casually loop around the table in this office. People are chatting. They're snacking. It's very casual, and it feels almost documentary-like. But at the end, in the very final meeting that you have in the building, when they're all talking about what are we going to do about our Howard Beale problem, it is stiff. It is arch. It is artistic. He said he tried to shoot it like a commercial. And that his whole idea with the cinematography is that he wanted to make a movie where you watch the camera get corrupted, that it goes from being a kind of naturalistic-looking film to a really stiff, high-production-value, crazy-lit film. But he does it so smoothly. Well, because you are watching – literally, the the film is changing around you. And that is – so interesting. It's like I think in the beginning of the film, he's using natural light, uh, you know, so it, it is very realistic and, and verite to a certain degree. But you're right. I mean, you just – it slowly sneaks in. I mean, even if you want to just look at the big markers of it, what the news show becomes, like these big rotating panels and giant, you know, uh, like standees for the fortune teller and Howard Beale. And, you know, it really just even the set design of that, you know, I think it starts that transition into this second half of the movie once yeah. he gets his own format. And I love that Lumet frames those scenes. Like we're not watching it through the lens of the TV. Right. You know, we're, we're not just seeing it how it would look if it was perfect. Right. He pulls back just enough so that we see the stagehands who are actually moving the sets around. He makes us see the work and the effort and the kind of clumsiness of it. He doesn't just make it all glamorous. What I love about how he starts this movie, uh, first of all, it's a newscaster in the newscaster voice setting up, you know, the story of Howard Beale, which I was immediately drawn in on. It's just so great. But we are introduced to these characters in the most natural way that we can find them, which is they're drunk and they're stumbling around and you're, and you find, I think so much, uh, love for these two guys and they they are our two male leads, you know, um, and they're vulnerable. And I think Max definitely has some really great moments, especially with Faye Dunaway, like in the kitchen towards the end when they're having their breakup and he wants to go back to his wife. You have to love that Max, that (laughs) William Holden was in a, a movie was the younger man under the thrall of the older woman in yeah. Sunset Boulevard, and now he's the older man under the thrall of the younger woman. It's it's such a great performance, too, because I think he feels so much life from her. But do you feel that the reason why he's leaving her is because she'll never love him or that it was like this attempt to capture his youth? And he's like, you know what? I don't want my youth. I want my stability. In a way, I feel like... Faye Dunaway is so beautiful here. Mm-hmm. Even in a movie that dresses her in just like the worst earth tones. I was Instagram storying about this. Because I saw every that. time I watch this movie, I'm like, she is in the ugliest clothes. And they fit her perfectly. Looks I amazing. Sydney Lumet talks about how just her skirt alone, I think they had like 16 different places where they took it in. So it fits her beautifully. But it's the worst colors. And it makes me think like, is he trying to say that this is a woman who doesn't care that much about what she looks like in terms of bright colors, style? Well, I feel but like it it's fits a, her so well. Well, I feel like... That is maybe a sign of the times. It's the 70s. Weird things are going on. People are wearing day glow, man. They're like (laughs) paisley. But not in like the newsroom. I feel like, (laughs) I mean, I didn't take it in in any other sense that like I loved her blouses. I love the way she just, she carried herself actually more put together in the colors of the suits of the corporate people, right? You know, the only person I think who I remember having any color really 
and I, I could play totally wrong, so don't come at me, Twitter, but uh, is Robert Duvall when he's wearing the tux. It's like, oh, that's striking. But everyone else is in these like browns and tans oh, and things like that. But also, but Finch. also, but also William Holden's wife, Beatrice Strait, who has this bright red hair. Maybe mm. there's something in all of her beige clothes and all of Faye's beige clothes that make her look like she's drained. You know, like in mm. Benicula, how Benicula, the vampire yeah, yeah, yeah. rabbit, would always suck the color out of the carrot and leave a white carrot. I mean, she's just a bad girlfriend. Like, she never talks to him. She just only talks to him about her show. Right. So, like, I get that she'd be boring after a while. That right. She's not really engaged in anything. She never, you never see them even talk about the food. Mm-hmm. You know, they only ever talk about work. Well, she only talks. She like, only he is talks. like a passive observer in that relationship. Exactly. You almost never hear him talk at all. You're right. You're really right. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But then back to the very, very beginning. I mean, this network opening, it looks like Nashville, right? In Mm -hmm. a way. It's like four overlapping channels talking all over at once. You get to zoom in on who you want to think about. And then the camera literally does the Altman thing of zooming into the corner where we're going to start talking about how we feel. And then they go to the bar. And I was really struck watching this again. You know, this movie is kind of positioned as old guys who don't get it, who don't understand which way the wind is blowing versus... Faye Dunaway is this younger generation, and that is 100% the thing that's happening. But what strikes me is that from the very beginning, Max and Howard also know that this is what's happening. They just don't want to do it. Listen to the way they talk about what Howard thinks he should be doing next. I'm going to kill myself. Oh, shit, Howard. Oh, I'm going to blow my brains out right on the air, right in the middle of the 7 o'clock news. Get a hell of a rating, I'll guarantee you that. 50 share, easy. You think so? Sure. We can make a series out of it. Suicide of the week. Why the hell, why limit ourselves? Execution of the week. Terrorist of the week. I love it. Suicides. Assassinations. Mad bombers, mafia hitmen, automobile smash-ups, the death hour. Great Sunday night show for the whole family. Wipe that fucking Disney right off the air. I mean, I'm happy with wiping that fucking Disney right off the air. Yeah. But yeah, they, they know exactly what would be a hit right now on TV. It's just they're drunk and they're joking about it. And Diana Christensen is going to make it real. Well, this is the battle that we always have, right? Which is like out with the old, in with the new. And the, the friction that that causes. And I think watching the scene and talking about this with you, I'm also going, oh, it's interesting. These actors, he's cast these, you know, veteran actors. And, 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 and this new actress who is this vibrant 
you know, uh, star, you know, but this is like William Holden is on the way out. Like all the, you know, the, the cast, if you looked at their faces with the exception again of Robert Duvall, but Robert Duvall, I would argue is in the middle. He's corporate. He is, he is, you know, walking that balance. He, he appears to be like the old guard, but is, you know, funneling his attention and energy into the new guards. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, before, before Peter Finch did this movie, he'd kind of given up on acting at all. He was living in Jamaica where he met his final wife. He was more or less retired when this movie wow. came out and brought him back on the air. I mean, this is how far back Peter Finch goes back. He used to be like a traveling theater performer. Mm-hmm. And then he was spotted one day while he was on the road by Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier. And wow. they saw him and they're like, you're really talented. I actually think that you should be more of a legit actor and they brought him to the old Vic which is where Laurence Olivier yeah. he was really in charge of that theater and they put him on the stage there in London and then he became a bigger deal a bigger sensation and then he wound up having like an affair with Vivian Lee you know he wound up doing a whole bunch of stuff he wound up becoming like a very intense alcoholic which he definitely was mm-hmm. at this point in time that's a lot of what contributed I think to his health problems yeah because yeah, he was he- having a lot of issues and it had a, a very complicated history with Faye Dunaway on, was it The Towering Inferno? They were in the film together. Oh, man, that movie's so fun. Yeah, and <laughs> I guess they just did not get along. And Somebody that was... didn't get along with Faye Dunaway? You're <laughs> kidding. But I think that they were thinking like, oh, would this be a bad match in the film? You know, is that going to set off? But, I mean, I think it, they had an easier go around. But they're very rarely together in, yeah. in this film. I I've, mean, yeah. they're separate entities. He wanted this part so bad and Lumet didn't even want him because he's like, well, you're Australian accent. You won't, you know, you won't present as uh, as an American. And we weren't used to the Hemsworthification of. I, I know. Well, he was going to fly himself on his own dime to do the screen test. Wow. And then he sent a tape to Sidney Lumet where he read the New York Times, pitch perfect in an American accent. I did not know he was Australian until I was doing my research. I was like, oh, pretty good, pretty good. Well, that's what breaks my heart about him not being alive to get to see his performance really take off. I mean, one of the other stories about why they think he did die of a heart attack mm-hmm. was he was so determined to get an Oscar that he did press nonstop. He was just, oh, he did God. like over 300 interviews and he didn't drive. So he was walking himself, I think to like the Beverly Hills Hotel. They don't give him a car? Well, I don't know. Uh-huh. He was like walking himself there every day back and forth, like four or five miles. He liked walking, so it wasn't a big okay, deal. Okay, yeah. But he was doing a lot of walking. And so the story is he walked there one morning, he sat down in a chair, he was waiting for inter- for TV interviews Sidney Lumet walked in because he was going to join him just in time to watch him collapse. And so he died right before he was supposed to do a ton of interviews. So in a way, this movie is kind of, I mean, the making of this movie is kind of echoing real life because they work this man to the death, uh, you know, for, I mean, it is for entertainment value. Yeah. And then what I didn't know about until I read, there's actually a really great book on network for people who are interested in it. Mm -hmm. It's written by Dave Itzkoff. He writes for the New York Times. Oh yeah. I love Dave. Yeah. He's terrific. He wrote a book called Mad as Hell. And in that book, he talks about how there became this kind of minor Oscar scandal after his death, where if he won, there was a lot of back and forth chatter in the papers about who would get the award for him if he won. Uh And basically the producers of the Oscars said, you can have anybody from the cast you want. We recommend you have Patty. We recommend mm-hmm. you have Lumet. You, you have one of those guys, maybe William Holden, because they were nominated against each other. Right. They can come up and get the Oscar for him. And Patty was like, well, we really want his widow to get it if he wins. We yeah. really want his widow, Althea, to get it. And the Oscars were like, absolutely not. Was this before or after the Marlon Brando incident? It was after. It was after okay. the Sachin Littlefeather incident. So they were very protective over who should get an Oscar. Also, I think there was a little bit of an optics question because mm-hmm. – 
Peter Finch, his wife was black. And I think they thought maybe having a black woman come up and accept an award at a time when hadn't happened since, wow. you know, no black female had won an Oscar for an acting category since Hattie. I think they didn't want that optics. Wow. This is how it played, the night played out, actually. Hattie walked up there, took the award, and then he did this. For some obscure reason, I'm up here accepting an award for Peter Finch, or Finchy, as everybody who knew him called him. There is no reason for me to be here. There's only one person who should be up here accepting this award, and that's the person who Finch wanted up here accepting his award, Mrs. Peter Finch. Are you in the house, Alita? Come up and get your award. And then there's wow. a ton of applause as she walks up, and I just want to hear, I want to give us a chance to get to actually hear her speak. I want to say thanks to members of the Academy and my husband. I wish he was here tonight to be with us all. But since he isn't here, I'll always cherish this for him. But yeah, I mean, in a way, just this battle over the optics of who gets right. to pick up this award is networking and in its own right. Absolutely. I mean, and I think, again, this is why this movie is important. We open up, you know, the newsroom's talking about gun control. I, I wrote that down right away. It's like, we're constantly, you know, what are we leading with? What are we talking about? How are we presenting it? And we're talking about the same issues 40, you know, 45 years later, 43 years later, like, it, we're dealing with the same things. And I know that Lumet and Chayefsky did not even want this film or consider this film to be a satire. I think they were just running with this premise after like Chayefsky like went and studied, uh, you know, how newsrooms were, uh, you know, run. I think she's got all these ideas. And for people to see it, they probably assume like, oh, this is heightened. But it wasn't. I think as time has gone on, it just shown not that she was uh, so smart that she saw where it was going, but that she was just in that room and she, as a, you know, a, an unbiased eye, is like, oh, this, I'm just reporting on this. It's kind of the same way, again, going back to Nashville, just being there and being a fly on the wall, you get to paint a picture that's a lot more truthful. Yeah, I mean, this is probably a good moment to even just like talk about Paddy Chayefsky himself, yeah. you know, because he's such a major voice at this time and he had been for decades. You know, Paddy Chayefsky, for, you know, people who just want like a little bit of a biography mm -hmm. about him, He's this Jewish kid from the East Coast. He gets drafted into World War II. And instead of having this really heroic World War II story, the way that like a lot of people from this era do, he said, like, I went out one night to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And I got I accidentally sat and pooped on a landmine. And then it blew up and he got a purple heart. He was fine. Wow. But he was just he always would make fun of who he was as a person. He was kind of a chubby guy. Everybody was made fun of him for being a chubby guy. He got teased a lot. He was considered kind of difficult. But one of the people that he met when he was in the military became a playwright. And he ran into this guy when he got out of the service. And the guy said, you were always really talented. You wrote cool stuff just to entertain the troops when we were in the, in the war. Stop working on these like low paying jobs. Let me give you $500. Take that money and write a play and be the person that you should be. And he did. And he wrote a play and it was great. And then he gets into television really early on in the 1950s when TV is experimenting with doing things like writing hour-long plays mm -hmm. and filming them and figuring out what TV was supposed to do. And one of the early things that he wrote became super famous. And it was a TV play called Marty that then became oh, a wow, movie yes. called Marty. And Marty is just amazing. I actually pulled a clip from the movie and not the TV just to play it because it's beautiful. This is Ernest Borgnine. And what Marty is about is it's about a man who works in a butcher shop. He's in his mid-30s. His mom really wants him to find love. 
He's given up on love, and this is his mom pressuring him to go to a dance that night. I chased after enough girls in my life. I, I went to enough dances. I got hurt enough. I don't want to get hurt no more. I just called up a girl this afternoon. I got a real brush off, boy. I figured I was past the point of being hurt, but that hurt. Some stupid woman who I didn't even want to call up. She gave me the brush. No, Ma, I don't want to go to Stardust Ballroom because all that ever happened to me there was girls made me feel like I was a, a bug. I got feelings, you know. I had enough pain. No thanks, Ma. Marty. No. I'm going to stay home tonight and watch the hit parade. Are you going to die without a son? So I'll die without a son. Oh, Marty, put on the blue suit, huh? Blue suit, gray suit. I'm just a fat little man, a fat, ugly man. You're not ugly. I'm ugly, I'm ugly, I'm ugly. Marty. Ma, leave me alone. Ma, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? I'm miserable enough as it is. All right, so I'll go to the Stardust Ball, Ma. I'll put on a blue suit and I'll go. And you know what I'm going to get for my trouble? Heartache. A big night of heartache. I mean, Marty oh. is incredible for people who haven't yeah. seen it. I can't I've recommend it. it. And I, it's so beautiful. And so what happens is Marty is one of the things that in these early days of TV legitimizes TV and says this is an art form. And Patty is that person associated it with it. He is a person who showed what TV maybe could become. And then he was the person who spent the next many, many years yelling at what it had become. You know, there are all these headlines like – Chayefsky claims TV is stupid. Well, he yeah. He's considered really difficult. And he it, said, like, television is democracy at its ugliest. <laughs> exactly, because it meant it, it was personal to him to see. He knew all the people. He knew all the players. He knew the power of it, and it really scared him. Like, 90% of the people in America watch the moon landing on TV. That is so powerful. Yes. And then he watches TV become the thing where. One of the things he griped about was an episode um, of the news where Barbara Walters was saying, let's see if we can test a dog's IQ. Well, I mean, don't – but we're living in this time now. And, and I'm not trying to get political, but you see the power of a person who is a reality show host becoming the president of the United States. There is – there Impossible. is a – I mean, but you also look at – a action movie star becoming the governor of California. You, you look, look at, at a, a wrestler who played with chimpanzees yeah. becoming the governor of California, and and then president. And you look at like <laughs> you know the, a guy who was in Predator and the WWF becoming like the governor of Minnesota. Like not to say that these people aren't worth their salt and they don't deserve to be in the places that they deserve to be in. I'm just saying that the power of that exposure, the power of the perception of who you are. Whoever listens to this show, if you're pro or uh, anti-Trump, I, I think you can say one thing that Donald Trump... I don't Tr think the guy from The Federalist still listens. I think he yelled at me <laughs> enough times for saying that Mitch McConnell was a ring wraith and I think he stopped. He was married <laughs> to Meghan McCain. I didn't know that. We were getting yelled at by that guy. <laughs> um, well, what I guess I'm saying is like, as you present yourself as how you are seen. And that's why I'm going back to the opening. When you're drunk, you get to see who they actually are. But Donald Trump presents himself as a rich man. So people always assumed him rich man, there's no problem. And I think that that's the power of TV. It, like, it creates uh, a false narrative. It, do it doesn't have to be the right narrative. It just creates a narrative that you want to create. I, I don't know. So I think I get that. And I think that our media right now is full of that. That's the reason why we don't have original movies. I, we were tweeting about this on, uh, on Twitter. Like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the first movie this summer that's an original work to make over $100 million. And before that, I believe it was... Um, us, right? So it's those you know, are the only two this entire year. That's crazy. So the only original work that's making money, two, and how many movies and everything else is reboots and and you know remakes. It's that makes it's, me want to cry. Like I mean, 
I don't know how much money Good Boys is going to make in theaters. Good Boys, that like gigantic, wonderful, beautiful comedy. By the way, see this movie. It's, it's so, so, so good. Funny. It's so good. If that movie doesn't break $100 million, we're just dead. I'm so sad. No, but we need like we need original voices. But yet we – I think we're starting to find ourselves in a society – and I don't want to get on a soapbox. We'll talk about, we'll talk about network. But where – you know, corporations are taking over. You'd rather eat an Olive Garden than a mom and pop Italian place. Uh, you would, ra- you know, it's familiarity. And I think familiarity and what we know is actually causing the death of our own ideas in a way. It's like it's becoming corporate structures are running how what we watch, what we eat, what we do. And that's what they talk about in this movie. I mean, this this conglomerate makes decisions. You know, it's, it's you know, and that's why Ned Beatty, when he comes in, it's like, you don't understand. No, 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 no. This is how the world works. And that's a fucking shocking thing. So I'm sure people are like, oh, that's sad. It does, no, it doesn't work like that. Corporations don't run like that. Like, no, it does. It's only seemingly more and more like that. It does. I mean, let's hear the Ned Beatty speech. I mean, for context, what's been going on is that Howard Beale has been very angry to realize that his network, which is owned by a corporation in itself, and Mm -hmm. that corporation is maybe getting owned by the Saudis. Right. And I have to say, like, hearing Howard Beale talk about the layers of corporations and things and bankers and investment people that own media companies, as a person who has, you know, seen the death of many newspapers that I wrote for, a hundred percent, this is all a hundred percent true, you know, in the newspaper world. Everything I've ever witnessed has been an independent paper getting purchased by a conglomerate, getting purchased by some sort of consortium that doesn't care what a newspaper does. Right. And thinks that we're supposed to be a major profit-making enterprise, which we aren't, you know. And so this is all true. And what happens is Beale goes on the air, talks about it, and then gets in trouble with his big, 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 big boss. Who is right, Ned because Beatty. it stopped being funny and entertaining, and it started to actually hit a real nerve. I think when he's, when he is just railing, he, it is fun. I mean, he passes out and people are applauding. It's like this is a celebration. But when he starts to say real truthful things that can actually hurt the network, then they step in. Exactly. That's one of those details that I love in this movie is watching Bill go on his rants and then faint. And then you watch all the workers in the audience, everybody mm. who's on set, try to get the audience to applaud and nobody comes and touches him. Yeah. He's just alone on the stage. And well, it devastates me. This is the end time. of Nashville, too. I mean, we're talking about movies in the same time. You a know, year after each other. Yeah. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. Is that clear? You think you merely stopped a business deal. That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and main, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multi-dollars, Reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. 
And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? I love that. I fucking love that. That, like, like, I love that he's talking. You think, oh, is he insane? No, no. He's just going, I think the only way I can get through to this guy is that, and by the way, as a fan of hand acting, some of the best hand acting uh, of all time. The fingers. And I love the framing of it that he's so far away, but Mm -hmm. lit in this airline looking runway of desk lamps. And then you keep cutting to Beale, who's in close up, very extreme close up. In darkness, almost. And in darkness. And the look on Beale's face is exactly the look he has when he wakes up in the middle of the night and he thinks he's mm-hmm. hearing the voice of God. He's like, oh, this is God. I mean, is this, this... is God. And then you have Ned Beatty walk over in his direction and then he's backlit like this faceless God. Like Do an you think is happening. it's his imagination? Is Ned Beatty's speech his imagination? I'm not going to once upon a time in Hollywood this. This <laughs> is happening. This is real. <laughs> um, Howard Beale starts off angry. We all... He's angry. Everyone in this movie is angry. You know, whether it's the um, the terrorists, they're angry. <laughs> I mean, that's another great scene. You know, you have like this guy shooting a gun to talk about contract deal points, you know, surrounded by people in suits. Yeah, can Such we be a, here a couple oh. seconds of that? Because I just love this contrast. I mean, what the scene says to me is everybody is corruptible. Even mm-hmm. the uncorruptible communists oh, are yeah. absolutely corruptible in the face of TV. We're not sitting still for overhead charges as a cost prior to distribution. Dog! Fuck with my distribution costs. I'm making a lousy 215 per segment. I'm already deficiting 25 grand a week with Metro. I'm paying William Morris 10% off the top. And I'm giving this turkey 10,000 per segment, another five for this fruitcake. And Helen, don't start no shit with me about a piece again. I'm paying Metro 20% for all foreign and Canadian distribution. And that's after recoupment. The Communist Party's not gonna see a nickel out of this goddamn show until we go into syndication. Oh, come on, Lorraine. The party's in for 7,500 a week production expense. I'm not giving this pseudo-insurrectionary sectarian a piece of my show. I'm not giving him script approval, and I sure as shit ain't cutting him into my distribution charges. You fucking fascist! Did you see the film we made of San Marino jailbreak out demonstrating the rising up of the seminal prisoner class infrastructure? You can blow the seminal prisoner class infrastructure out your ass! I mean, I need to just jump in and say, the casting of the Ecumenical uh, Liberation Army yes. is, I mean, it is a casting that is of the level of, like, the Manson kids in, in Once Upon a oh, Time yeah. in Hollywood. It is so brilliant. I mean, the major voice that you hear is Marlene Warfield. She's a really awesome, tough woman. Once she was uh, leaving a bar and a cop started to hassle her and she fought with him and bit his thumb. Wow. I mean, she's a badass. And then you have Arthur Berghard playing the great Ahmed Khan, and he's incredible. This is a guy who had recently just done two and a half years in jail for evading the draft. You know, he was a really political figure. He actually was really uncomfortable playing a character like the great Ahmed Khan. He was he was worried basically he'd never work in this town again that all of his friends would think he was a horrible person for playing this kind of like lampoon but also dangerous but also people might take this character too literally character. Right. He tried to everything he could to make this character look sort of like a fool. You know, when he's introduced, he's eating Kentucky Fried Chicken, which I noticed is like we've had so many Kentucky, like yeah, Kentucky Fried Chicken box sightings. They are ready to get into yeah. the movies, yeah. Yeah, and he deliberately smeared his character's face with grease to make him look more repulsive because he wanted to make it clear he wasn't on the side of this guy. Interesting. By the way, did you recognize his voice? You know, it sounded so familiar, but no, I don't know where it's from. I thought you, of all people, as a child in right. the 80s, would recognize him because he played a little character in the cartoon G.I. Joe named Destro. Oh, my God. Destro, my old friend, we congratulate you on the success of your mission. Success? 
You dare speak to me of success, you psychotic, sibilant servant of a dolt! You know, we're talking about these great performances, these great speeches, and we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the classic speech, the most parodied speech, the most, you know, quintessential moment of this film, which is weird to watch for a first time in 2019 because you're so familiar with it. It's so in the DNA. It's a joke. Whenever something is so good, it becomes a joke. And that's a real terrible thing about culture, I think. I think I'm realizing that as we do this podcast more and more because you take the steam out of it. Like it will never be as powerful as it was because <laughs> you've seen it goofed on so many yeah. times. And you know, there is a danger even in this movie. That this, even this movie seems aware, like if you make something a joke, it's dangerous. If you yeah. make Amit Khan, as she says, Archie Bunker, it's dangerous. Yeah. Shall we uh, listen to it? Yeah, we have to. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to get up right now. Get up, go to your windows, open them, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change. There's something really beautiful in the blocking of that as well. He's essentially in a cage, like he's in his newscaster cage, and he breaks free of it. And that's mm-hmm. the last time we ever see him held. That's true. Back, and this is like the moment of him breaking free. There's something really just beautiful about that, as far as from a directing standpoint. I though. love that. That's you're so right. Like we've we see him at the beginning as this composed guy getting his makeup done. Yeah. Here he's wet. He's bedraggled. He's lost. Like that first person's gone. And then yeah. you're right. He's never the desk guy ever again. And it's then what I also love is the reality of the moment when people are going to the windows. It's not it's not like Broadway musical. Everyone's out their windows. It's you kind of see like a head, another one, someone looking. It it seems like a very natural progression 
of how it could possibly happen. It's not like the whole streets are alive with people screaming it, but you hear like, you know, one or two people. I, I don't know. I just love the way that they present that moment. It feels real to me. Yeah. The first person you follow to the window is a teen girl who's kind of doing it as a lark. She's like, yeah, what's the reaction to this? Are we taking this seriously? So you're with her. You're like, I don't know how serious should we take this? And then you watch her take it in. It's sort of like we're all watching the same train wreck. Happen. Yeah. But what's fascinating is when you look at all these people in all these windows, it is such a cross section. You know, it's old mm-hmm. people, it's young people, it's all different types of people, and they're all angry. And I mean, to be honest, like that is one of the only things that gives me solace in this year is like realizing the 70s were just as bad. Yeah. And that if I want to yell out the window, they sure wanted to yell out the window too, and at least they survived. Well, don't you think that the one thing that we all share in common is we are all, and I know there are people out there who are going to disagree, we are all influenced by the media, right? We all can rail against the way that we are being given information, right? Like it, it, it doesn't matter what side you're on. It doesn't matter anything. It's just like we, you know, the anger at that. I mean, and, and we've kind of lost that anger because we're, we're not railing against the system. We're railing about the pieces within the system. Like I'm mad about how that story is coming out or how this TV show comes up, but we're not railing at the underlying cause of it, which is like these networks that are producing these things that are co-op. Like, you know, we, we, it's kind of like they are doing a giant magic trick. Yeah. And in this time of like extreme political divisiveness, I wonder how many of the people pulling our strings are like Diana, who seems to be completely apolitical. She just Mm -hmm. wants a good story. Yeah. I mean, one thing that is true though in 1976 is that there is a precedent for a news anchor killing themselves on air. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were a few movies about this a couple of years ago. It was like this dovetailing yeah. of the two stories of Christine Chubbuck in Florida, who shot herself on air because her bosses were yelling at her to do worse types of news, to do news she didn't. Did think you was see that movie, Christine? Yeah, I saw them both. I saw them both, and so you. Know, Patty and Sydney have always said, like, oh, we weren't that aware of it, or they couldn't really find any records in their notes of them being that aware of it. Well, because but I think they were writing it while it was ha- when it happened. So it it may have seeped in, but it wasn't like, I saw that, I need to write this. Do you think that he is mentally unwell? Do you think he's having a nervous breakdown? Do you think that without his job, he is nothing? I mean, because we, we really meet him at, after he's been fired, right? We are joining the conversation probably two hours after or three hours after he had been told he has two weeks left on his uh, contract. Yeah, I mean, I think both he and Max, they have this kind of parallel journey of who are we when we are not these people? Like, Mm -hmm. if this has been our entire career. And I do think there is sort of a breakdown element of like, if I don't have the thing that's made me famous or powerful or that's given me a life for living, worth living, I don't want it anymore. Right. And they handle it in such different ways. You know, in a way, Max goes crazy too by having this affair with Diana. And, and right, he wrecks his whole life. Exactly. He wrecks his whole life as well. You know, they both do that. It's just the one difference is Max, his main purpose in this movie is really to be the only person with any sort of a conscience beside his wife. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the one voice of reason who's like, my friend is not well. Can we take care of him? Right. But other than that, I mean, he's, you know, also culpable of letting TV control his life. Like, I love the way that when Max has his breakup with, with um, Diana – he can only talk about it in terms of TV, too. I mean, yeah. I want to. Can we actually listen to even a second of that? And it's a happy ending. Wayward husband comes to his senses, returns to his wife, with whom he's established a long and sustaining love. Heartless young woman left alone in her Arctic desolation. Music up with a swell. 
final commercial. And here are a few scenes from next week's show. I mean, I love this love story. And it's a great story, but he is her, right? To a certain degree. Like, he is her 20 years before her, too. Yeah, he frames it in the same way. And, yeah. you know, everybody in this movie is talking about Faye Dunaway, like this you know, television generation mm-hmm. raised by Bugs Bunny as though she's this terrifying anomaly. But now the people of Faye Dunaway's age are talking about the kids who grew up on phones as though they're the crazy ones. Yeah. You know, now the Faye Dunaway generation is like, you kids these days always with your angry well, birds. You're always going to get the other generation looking down on how they interact, how they date, how they do anything. And everyone looks back at their way of it as the best way, which is, you know, how we open the movie. Uh, you know, the Max character talking about how he covered news, how he overslept and, you know, this hard drinking lifestyle. I, I love it. I love, I, that, that love story is amazing. And I think what I love about Faye Dunaway's character, and keep on going back to, she's very honest with him, right? Like she's not struggling with this. She's like, I. this is what I'm capable of. And I think you see that a lot of the times in celebrity couples and uh, and when you look at these old biographies, like my career is more important than – it's not like she's incapable of love. She just loves her career and moving up and getting the accolades more than she wants a relationship. And I think now we're in a culture where that actually is a little bit more societally acceptable. Like, no, no, I'm not focusing on my – love life, I'm focusing on my career. And I think what you see with Max is something that you come to realize when you spend your whole life doing that, the only important thing is the life that you have because that can all fall apart and then you have nothing. And if you go down too long, you have nothing behind you. And I think going back to our earlier conversation about Peter Finch, it may not even be that he is unwell, but he has nothing. We don't see his wife and family. We don't know. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he is also on that track. And and if you are rudderless, you essentially spin out of control until you crash. And in this case, you know, is, are killed on air. You're right. I mean, in a way, we keep talking about TV as this revelation of the God, but they have all put it forward. Mm-hmm. Like it has all been the center driving force, the thing that they worship, their careers. Yeah. And I'm a career person, so Me I too. totally get it too. Like I absolutely understand you know, deciding that that's the best trade-off. And I really like thinking about how radical a Faye Dunaway-type character was in a time where, you know, even maybe worse than today, women were expected to have a job, and then when they get married, you're done. Right. You're out of here, kid, which is still a problem. It's still a problem of stigmatization like that. And what a radical character she is. And I, I think it's fascinating to try to imagine how scary she was through other people's eyes at this time. Mm. Because I'm still trying to wrestle with my little bit of like, go girl, which is always the thing I have with Faye Dunaway in general, even though every story you hear about her, she's just the worst. It's like, hard. I love her character but so maybe much. You need I always that, want to love her. But maybe you need that type of performer to bring that character to life. I mean, look. We're not all good people. It doesn't make a difference. You, get, you know, she's good at her job, which was to be this person and to be other people. She won the Academy Award. What's interesting about it is now this character, not Faye Dunaway, but this character lives on. And we actually got to sit down with one of the stars of Network, the Broadway show, Tatiana Maslany, who you might know from Orphan Black. She's just a fantastic actress. And she had the, I think, the daunting task of bring this character to stage in a different way. Michelle Dockery played it in the West End. She's playing it here. And we got to talk to her about her experience in network and her experience with this character. And it's, I think you're really going to like to hear how the audience reacted to her now in 2019. So talk to me about your first 
kind of exposure to network. So I hadn't seen the movie before I got the um, audition for it, for the play, um, and was kind of shocked that I hadn't seen it because it felt like it was it like 70s cinema is kind of my thing. And yeah. I just felt like it was so unique and funny and weird and kind of bouncing it off the play adaptation um, was was interesting because they really took a different path with it. Yeah, talk to me about that. Like, what what are the differences between the play and the film? The play is very Howard Beale-centric. Okay. So it's sort of the character you side with is him. Whereas in the film, it feels like he's sort of, he's really mad in a way that's kind of alienating almost. Yeah. But in the in the play, it's, I think, Evo Van Hove who directed the play um, and, and Lee Hall, who adapted the screenplay, really wanted to, like, work on that, the humanity of Howard Beale. Right. And sort of, like, where we can get caught up in his, in his um, ideology in a way that's, like, because we believe it. Right. And then maybe he tips into stuff that we're like, oh, that's kind of fucked up. And, like, that is sort of where my boundary gets drawn in terms of, like, where I can follow him. But he really, like, with Brian, Brian Cranston, who played him— it was really about like the human being that was being um, used. Yeah, and it feels like the audience was a part of that in the live production, where the audience is kind of almost not manipulated, but they're they're feeding that they're being the real audience that they're commenting on a network as well. I mean, totally. Like our hype man who like who gets the crowd going is getting the audience going and getting them to yell, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And there's audience on stage that are eating while, you know, we're performing right next to them and we go out into the street. So it's like really, I think about the culpability of the audience. Yeah. Whereas network, the film always felt a little like you could watch it and be like, oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a satire and it's like, Almost sci-fi is what Evo always said about it. And what was it like to do this character, and especially like night after night? I mean, what did you find in that? Well, character? it was interesting coming to it because there, because Faye Dunaway was so iconic in that part, and because I think um, just like critics and audiences and everybody had so kind of vilified that character in right. a way that was like really ossified, right. like she was the baddie in a way that I was like I always struggled with, and maybe this is just my own perspective, but always was like, well, but what about the guys who are doing the exact same thing? Yeah. But there was something about her gender that allowed for like, oh, she's the she's the baddie. Right. And she's so vile and she's so this and that. And rewatching the movie, I was like, there's actually a lot of opportunities for her fall and for her like uh, hum- humanity to show through. In, in our adaptation in the play, she's a lot more one-track mind. There's like very little give in terms right. of um, her her wants. She gives very little to Max uh, in that relationship. It's really one-sided. You know, she orgasms and he's like this piece of meat that she's just fucked. You know what I mean? Like it's, she's just sort of on her own thing. It's a tough character because you're not only creating a character, you're creating a character that people have an expectation of when you're going into it as well. Totally. That's, and that's, I mean, how, so what was your like approach? I mean, not to get too actory about yeah. it, but like, what was your approach to kind of make it your own and then also find that humanity? Well, I think I had to really, I, I watched the film and I like 
wrote about it and blah, 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 and like dissected it. But then I really had to let it go right. because I'm such a different creature from Faye Dunaway. Like it just, they couldn't have <laughs> cast a different guy. Like if they try, you know, just so different. And I had to really get my head around the fact that they picked me, right. which is like, fra- you know, fraud alert. Flying high. Of course. Well, we all feel that at every given point. <laughs> totally, I mean, yeah, we should totally. never get any jobs that we have. No, <laughs> no, we don't deserve that. Yeah, no, of course and what not. What do you yeah. think you're doing? <laughs> and so, so it was really about just trying to continue to find myself in her and find my own interpretation, which is not, you know, the power necessarily of Faye Dunaway or the the coldness of Michelle Dockery or whatever, but like my own version of what it is, what it is to be really hungry for something and really like one track minded about something and really passionate about, about my wants and do it in my way. And it took me 200 performances before I was like feeling. Cause yeah. Well, that's an interesting thing because you get to like, like run over a groove so many times in, in live theater that I feel like, is it evolve? I mean, it is evolving. Then it's sort of yeah. like you know where you started to where you ended it. I can't imagine it not. Right? Yeah. I think some people don't care to evolve it, but that's like no, because I've heard some people like I said it, and then it's like you said it and forget it, and it, yeah. like, that just seems like it, it. It's a recipe for I don't know, just going crazy. I think. absolutely crazy. So anytime I felt like I was settling into something, it'd be like no, no, no. What What's interesting here? What yeah. am I trying to solve? What What question do I have? And I think also the audience. Because it's such a prescient piece, yeah. Because it at the time in the seventies, it maybe was like fiction, but now it's so much the world we're living in um, that the audience response, because it was so visceral for them, really um, endowed us with different energy and different, you know, perspective. Well, I was going to ask about that because in like in the seventies, here's Faye Dunaway. She's coming in and she has a brand new way of looking at news and programming, and she's being very, you know controversial in that time but mm-hmm. now again she's doing something that is normal like this is so normal, normal stuff did you find that people liked her more or no. She, no 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 it was like a vacuum when i walked out <laughs> i was always like because brian was so like so funny and so like light and like d- deep in that character and just so connected to the audience and i come out and i just feel this like oh wow I, yeah because it because i think they're scared of what she'll do to him Right. You know, because she's using him and he's their guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas in the film, there's a bit less of that kind of black and whiteness. Yeah. Um, but I definitely did not feel them on my side, which was another great thing to get wow. over every night. Yeah, <laughs> to be the People hated. just being like, get off oh, the stage. <laughs> it's the worst feeling. Yeah. Talk to me about just network in general and your experience, because now you were with this text. And I know it's very closely based on, on the movie. Yeah. But like, what is your takeaway now? And, and how do you look at, do you look at media different? Do you, you know, what did you take away from the entire experience? I feel like I was so kind of uh, aware of media, media, uh, like mandates mm-hmm. from just being in the industry and yeah. also just being a woman in the industry. Yeah. You really feel like tokenized so often or like you're filling a quota or whatever. Right. Um, so, so that stuff was familiar to me, but I think the, the, um, the anger of people, which is another thing that I'm really fascinated by is like, when is anger, like in the film, when is it destructive? And when is it um, like we're seeing now destructive and activating? Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, and I think that's again, why the piece is so important now is that it, looks at anger from um, a myriad perspective, like different perspectives that aren't just 
bad. You right. know, like it, it is also the political, the thing that gets people politically active. Yeah. Or the thing that puts people, you know, gets people in the street protesting. Yeah. But it's also the thing that causes people to hate each other. And, you know. Well, it's sort of like, yeah, your point of view. And, and sometimes the, I mean, it's hard to say like a, somebody's point of view is wrong. But if sure. you spend any time on social media, you can say like, yeah, like there's some yeah. wrong points of view. They're, they're wrong. But, um, <laughs> but when you're dealing with a show where the audience is so involved, yeah. did it ever go off the rails? Like I had a friend who was in uh, Glengarry Glen Ross on Broadway uh-huh. and Alan Alda was in that. Uh-huh. And like, you know, some in the middle of the show, someone just yelled like Hawkeye, like from because he no. was Hawkeye on Mash. And I'm wondering, like, when you give the audience that permission to be like, "You're a part of it." Yeah. Did you ever? Did was there any like moment like that? Just that- there was one moment where a, where I come out on stage after Howard Beale is has done like a little rant. I come out on stage and I start talking about the show's ratings and how they're tanking and blah blah blah. And this drunk guy in the audience went, "It's Howard's show," and I was like. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> shit. Like, so he just right. really needed to tell me that. I love it. And in the moment, like a passionate. The, He's yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. He also got removed from the audience because <laughs> he was doing other shit. But like, <laughs> but I was like, that is, that's intense. That it's like ra- riled him up to that extent. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Well, this is perfect. This yeah. is great. Uh, thank you so much. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s. 1975 to be exact, with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie, and fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, that idea that Howard Beale is the person we're supposed to empathize with. I mean, I find that so fascinating because mm-hmm. the thing that we've really had, especially in the last 15 years of media, is that there's this generation of people these generation of newscasters who do all completely empathize with Howard Beale, celebrate him, adopt his tics and all decide that he is maybe the sympathetic one that like they, they don't think being Beale is a bad thing. This movie says being Beale means everybody's going to take advantage of you. They're going to kill you in a very bloodless murder chat scene about how your ratings are good enough to live. But the people that this movie spawned who watched it, it's almost like they watched taxi driver wrong. I pulled a couple Mm -hmm. clips. I pulled a clip from three different people across the spectrum this is all the influence of Howard Beale through the lens of Keith Olbermann, Glenn Beck, and Bill O'Reilly. And just so you could picture uh, Keith, who's going to start off, he is actually wearing the trench coat. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to riot. I don't want you to write your congressman. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being, damn it. My life has value. So I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, stick your head out and yell. Good night and good luck. It's funny to have him do that because he is one of the more or was one of the more bombastic speak my mind reporters constantly getting fired and moved around for what he said. And to see him doing it, it actually pumps me out. So that is a self-consciously, yeah, that is a self-conscious nod to Beale. 
Bill O'Reilly does it also incredibly self-consciously. He even launched a section called Mad as Hell. Mad as Hell segment tonight. What's really teeing you off? This evening we begin a brand new segment where you sound off about things that are driving you crazy. We owe the segment to Patty Chayefsky and the movie Network. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! It's exactly how I look with Barney Frank. <laughs> Here now to help us with mad, very mellow oh. woman, Juliet Huddy. I wanted that contrast. <laughs> um, so first up, Huddy, is Lori Martin, who lives in Illinois. She's mad as hell about Obamacare chaos. Quote, <laughs> Blue Cross Blue Shield. I just want to hear Obamacare chaos. I mean, the thing that gets me about him is that he is exactly opposite of Keith Olbermann. I think he is so controlled and rational and not even manipulative. Like, I've never seen him get mad and the only time I see him get mad is when he's telling somebody to shut up like not because he's passionate he's only passionate about people not interrupting him yeah and that's why exactly like the person we're going to play last is the person who makes me the most nervous because they are the most of the template for what is happening right now which is people channeling Howard Beale but not doing it self-referentially not wearing the trench coat not playing clips from network but just being him and I find it terrifying this is of course my nemesis Glenn Beck I'm tired of it and I know you are too. What will it take? Oh, it's a historic day. Some people think we're having a 1776 moment. No, no, we're having July 14th, 1789. That's the one that ended with the guillotines in France. They were both revolutions. Isn't it great? They're both calling for freedom. No, one ended with bloodshed and guillotines. There is a difference. More in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm I'm constantly impressed by Glenn Beck because I think he is the person who knows how to manipulate media. Like he came from a radio show background. If you listen to his old radio shows, it's so pop forty. Like here's the weather. Here's the thing. It's cultivating a media personality. Like. Why are we cultivating a media personality based on someone losing their mind? Like, you know, I mean, ultimately, yes, he's angry. But, well, you know, like, why? Like, that's not like, I don't think that that's what we should be looking for. Like, in a way, I, I don't know. I, I, it's, but that's, but this is the entertainment of it. This is what, you know, Glenn Beck drawing on that chalkboard right, when he did that. Like, these are all the things. And you could go and I, I could slam Bill Maher for doing the same thing. It's like everyone is making it into fucking show it's like news is not news you want to hear people around argue about it and you have the host in the center and he can tell you that you're all wrong and then you're happy about it you know yeah and glenn beck does the same thing that an alex jones does which is sometimes in interviews they'll be like i'm just an entertainer i'm yeah. just performing this but then they play it dead when they're talking to the people who take them seriously of course <sighs> but that's by the, the way that's, i just but want to medal the by the way for watching any of those because it was really really hard on <laughs> well me. you know what um there's somebody else who really took it on um and you probably aren't super familiar with them. I'm going to Amy you. I don't know if you are a fan of Snog. Uh, snog? Yeah, you know Snog. It's a cool band. Here, take a listen. Snog? There is no So yeah, that's you know that's also very uh, you know snog very influenced. Wow, by it. I can't believe you're down with snog. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I want to actually read something um, from Ray Bradbury who saw Network. Oh yeah. So Ray Bradbury saw Network, 
And Ray Bradbury was like, oh, you know, I really like the movie, but I actually have an idea for a better ending. Oh, really? Yeah. You want to hear his better yes. ending? This is what he wrote in an essay in the LA Times. He said, the assassination of the Finch character quite naturally raises the ratings of the night that he is killed. This was probably true, you know, in, in the movie the way it was. But here's what he changes. The network has been careful to drop some elephantine hints about a possible killing in the 24 hours previous. So then the funeral is held two days later during the supper news hour. The ratings rise even higher. The, a grandiose tomb is prepared with an immense sculptured rock in front. On the third day following the assassination, the rock is found rolled back. The tomb is empty. Ratings skyrocket, and the network hints that in about one year there will be a second coming. When Finch returns, it'll be the start of a whole new season, a whole new ratings extravaganza, a whole new religion. The assassination, of course, was a fraud. Finch, struck by soft bullets that anesthetized rather than killed, has been kept on ice in some Florida rest home against the day when it is time for his ecclesiastical rebirth. Oh, sweet memory of Peter Finch, forgive me for this. <laughs> I mean, there is something about that that would make it much more satirical. Yeah, and like Sidney Lumet, when he read that, he was like, you know, that's actually a great idea. Yeah. And if we did do a network sequel, what you could do is he could come back each time resurrected as whatever would be in fashion. He said he could be a black militant. He could be an esoteric film ah, director. I love it. He could be a fashion designer. And he wrote this up, and he sent it to Patty Chayefsky, and Patty ignored it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, you would have to also agree that Bullworth is a very uh, clear kind of connection to network. I mean, I didn't realize that I saw Bullworth before I saw network, but that's a, you know, it's a politician kind of speaking his mind and, you know, and we're in, there's a lot of movies that share this DNA. I, and I do think this one does it best. But do you want to hear a pan? Yeah. I mean, that, it was, yeah, I would love to hear a pan. Here's a really harsh pan. Let me guess who it's from. Pauline Kael. Why, yes, it is. Uh, of course. <laughs> it is a very harsh pan written by Pauline Kael. The title of her pan was Hot Air. Oh, love it. And um, here are some highlights of what she writes. She says, in network, Patty Chayefsky blitzes you with one idea after another. The ideas don't go together, but who knows which of them he believes anyway. He's like a village crazy bellowing at you. Television, he says, is turning us into morons and humanoids. People have lost the ability to love. Who, him, she says? Oh, no, 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 no. And here she gets on Patty Chayefsky's case for basically being an old man yelling, get off my lawn. She says, Chayefsky isn't writing a farce. He's just telling us a thing or two. He hardly bothers with the characters. The movie is just a ventriloquial harangue. And Lumet does Chayefsky straight, just as Chayefsky no doubt wanted. But the film looks negligently made, and the lighting bleaches the actors' faces like a color TV that needs tuning. And here, that's it's interesting because she's right, but she doesn't really... Go right. a step further of thinking that he did it on purpose. But anyway, yeah. I love that she at least picked up on it. And then she says she really gets into depth on the Mad at Hell scene. And here's what she wants to know. Is the viewer's obedience proof of their sheep-like response to TV? Or is it evidence that the public is as fed up as he is? You know, considering that the entire picture is Chayefsky sticking his head out the window and yelling, it must be good, yet there is no follow-through on this scene, and that is where the movie goes completely on the fritz. As in, if he really is tapping into this anger, well, then where is the anger? Like, do we have proof of this anger? Because she's wondering, like, how are we supposed to feel? Is he guessing? Is he right? Is he aware? Or is everybody just doing whatever he says? And she says... Chayefsky, it seems, can be indignant about people becoming humanoids and then turn a somersault and say that it's inevitable and that only a fool wouldn't even recognize that. And he's wrong on both accounts. Doesn't Chayefsky realize that everybody can feel even a kitty cat? Hmm. I don't know how to feel about that. What do you think? I mean, it is the kind of Kale review I really like because she's so 
pinpointed in what she notices. She is correct right. in a lot of these questions. You know, I when she mentioned that, it hadn't even occurred to me, like, how are we supposed to interpret this scene of everybody yelling? And she really does kind of say, like, which way is it? Does Chayefsky right. have a point one way or another? And I think that, you know, she goes a little bit hard on Chayefsky calling the Diana character a humanoid and saying, like, how does he think he's better than that? So I think I'm, I'm interested in her huffiness. Right. That she's like, he's made a movie that's insulting all of us, you know, and wondering how culpable he is in his own insult. So I think she took it really personally, and I find that fascinating, you know, that she, this media person who I think reads this movie really well, she really does pick up on this lighting of television, the way that it looks in the movie so accurately. She's so observant, and then I think she filters it through a lens that it makes it a diss. Well, can I make the argument that Pauline Kael may be similar to the Max character or all these white men in suits? You can make this argument, but I'm going to glare at you. All right. No, I just feel like... A lot of the films we talk about and the, the the bigger films that are kind of these cultural touchstones, she has a hard time kind of wrapping her head around, you know, whether it's something like Raiders of the Lost Ark or, or this, you know, it's like she is resistant to kind of understanding them on the level that they are going to be perceived in the future. She's like kind of watching them in a way like, well, that's not the way that I think it should be done or this. I don't know. I don't think that her reviews are ever bad. I just think that she's a little bit more protective of the circle that she's in. And I'm not making this case as like, I, I can't go to the mat on this case, but but a lot of the times like, she's butting heads up against some of the biggest movies that have had giant cultural in- impacts. I mean, she is butting her heads against them, but I don't think it's out of a protectiveness. Mm-hmm. I think she's anti-hype. Okay. You know, I mean, because she's the person who also went to the mat for things that were really groundbreaking, like Bonnie and Clyde, like Nashville just the year before this. I think what she does is when a movie comes in with a lot of hype and a lot of groupthink, she goes double hard on it. She's like, are you as good at this? And she tests it twice as hard. Okay. And she pokes all the holes that nobody else will poke. That's interesting. And I appreciate that. And I think that that sometimes needs to be done because we just kind of gobble up, oh, it's good, it's good, it's good. And that's why I always like her criticism because – even if I don't agree with it, she brings up points that I think make me enjoy it more. Yeah, I think she raises her criticism to the level of the film's reception. And she's like, I, if you are the masterpiece that you are, I'm going to cross-examine you like life right. and death Right, you deserve to be harder examined if you – yeah, I, I, I agree with this. All right, you've, you've changed my opinion on it. I think she's doing due diligence on not just giving it a pass because everyone says it's genius, it's genius, it's genius. All right, well then, Amy, we've really talked this movie every which way. And I would have to imagine that if the movie is worth its salt, it has a Simpsons clip. It has, in fact, a very direct network illusion. This is from an episode called Let's Go Fly a Coot. And the setup here is that Homer Simpson is really mad that children's birthday parties have been getting out of hand and getting incredibly extravagant. So he's been going around to little kids' birthday parties. And he's, instead of, you know, being okay with the fact that their parents have basically mortgaged their house to throw a party, he's been sabotaging all of them yeah. and trying to bring down the big birthday industrial complex. <laughs> and this scene picks up when he has been picked up in a helicopter by the big birthday industrial complex, taken to a conference room because they are mad at him. You have meddled with the primal forces of nurture, Mr. Simpson, and I won't have it! Do you think you just stopped a few lavish parties? Oh, no, sir. There is simply one endless birthday celebration where everyone gets a gift bag and no parent gets off easy! 
Do you think this country makes cars anymore? Do you think we smelt steel? No. The only thing we do is throw elaborate children's cotillions with enormous inedible cakes out from whence Yale graduates pop! The very fabric of our existence is birthdays! The quarks and bosons of your soul? Birthdays! You have tried to unwind the world, and you will atone! <laughs> I love it. And while we're playing parodies of that scene, I have to call out one of my favorite shows, Better Call Saul, in the first episode of the first season. Uh, Jimmy, uh, Bob Odenkirk's character, also does his little take on this when he appeals to uh, the law office that he uh, was recently fired from. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Hamlin, and I won't have it. Do you want me to call security? It's okay, Brenda. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that little scene. Well, Amy, we've had a really interesting conversation about this film. Um, what do you think? Does it belong on the list? I do really love Network. I really love Network. I feel like this is just, I mean, Cindy Lumet is one of my personal favorite directors that we have on this list. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I love him so much even is just that he really talks about film in the way that I like to hear people talk about film. That he would always stress that like, Making movies, this is the thing he actually wrote in Making Movies. It is not about how much in charge the director is. You know, that it is not like, as he says, un film de Sidney Lumet, mm-hmm. that he is dependent on weather, budget, what the leading lady had for breakfast, who the leading man is in love with, that he is dependent on the talents and idiosyncrasies, moods and egos, politics and personalities of more than a hundred different people. And that's just in the making of the film. He doesn't even want to get into the discussing the studio, the financing, the distribution, the marketing, and that the joy of making a film is in the give and take, and that hiring sycophants and servants is selling the picture and himself short. And I just love when people hammer that message home and see film this way and not in the complete auteurist vision. Uh, well, I mean, that's so right in line with Patty Chayefsky. And I'm misquoting him, but I believe this is exactly the idea of the quote. He was like, writing is not art. Writing is work. So don't look at writing like it's art. Look at it like it's work. And I love that theory. I just love that theory that, yes, all of this is a job. It's a fantastical job, but it has all the uh, the highs and lows of a normal job. And I think we see that perfectly displayed at the top of network. We talked about that. Here are people running one of the biggest news shows on TV, and they are not even paying attention to what's going on. We all are just doing jobs. We have to. Exactly. And we work for the man, work the corporation, the and I'm fucking mad. <laughs> Earwolf, come on down. Where is it? Who is it? Where? Let's bring it down. Bring down this network. Stamps.com, where are you? <laughs> anyway, next week on the show. <laughs> so, Amy, next week, uh, the film we're going to be talking about is Lawrence of Arabia. And I'm going to admit, this is a movie that I'm not excited to watch. It feels like homework to me. It's long. Um, I know it's beautiful, but I've been slightly dreading this film on the list. I don't know why. Um, I hope that I enjoy it. I know that everyone I talk to is like, just wait, just wait till you get there. And I'm going to really set myself up right, dim the lights, sit down and, and try to give it my full all attention. You at home listening right now, you have a chance to go see it live um, at the Fathom Events are doing uh, special screenings of Lawrence of Arabia coming up um, right here in the first week of September. So We're not f- affiliated with them, but go have fun. Yeah, go have fun. I mean, look, they should be advertising on our show. I have no idea why. Midroll. Anyway, I feel like this is a movie that 
I'm not alone in kind of being daunted by it. I feel like many people haven't really seen this movie. They know of it, but they don't know what it's about. Yeah, um, they just know camels. Yeah. I mean, I think of this movie as like, you know, uh, well, maybe I won't even say what I think. We should maybe hear what people who listen to the show think. If you've not seen Lawrence of Arabia, why don't you call in with your best assumption of what this movie is if you've not seen it. Uh, the number is 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And let us know what you think Lawrence of Arabia is. Hopefully many of you go out to see the film live in the theater. Um, I know I would have liked to have seen it that way. Maybe I actually will go back out and see it like that. Um, and we will see you after uh, your four-hour journey into Arabia. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.